Shalom Mishpocha, I'm Rabbi Eric Carlson. Welcome to this week's Kadima. This will be part one of motivation. Motivation is key in serving Adonai. Motivation is what makes us tick. Motivation is why we do what we do and with whom we do it for. Motivation is what gives us the drive to get up every morning and to do the things we wouldn't normally want to do. People must be motivated. This is intertwined with initiative. You have to have initiative to allow motivation to do its work. Motivation is a state of being motivated, having a desire or willingness to act, something that motivates an inducement, a reason, or goal, a desire to do, interest, or drive. Without understanding people's motivations, leaders fail to capture the potential that's available to them. And I can tell you after my military experience and time served in ministry these past 20 years, every person has a motivation. The key to this is they have different motivations. Some things drive one person, they don't drive another. But there's no higher calling and satisfaction in life outside of working for the kingdom of serving Adonai. We are all called to reveal heaven's worth and value to fellow believers to motivate them towards dedicated service in ministering before Adonai. Motivation is simply the condition of being motivated or inspired to act. Throughout Scripture, Adonai divinely motivates his people to action, from dreams and visions to burning bushes and fleeces, from earthquakes, roaring winds and storms, to the still, small voice. Adonai uses all things to motivate people to obey his commands and mitzvahs, to walk and rise into their calling and destiny within his kingdom. Why do we need motivation? Well, Hasetan continuously works against the will and plans of Adonai, trying to undermine, discourage, tempt, and place traps and snares before us to distract and cause us to stray from our divine calling and destiny in his kingdom. Life is full of traps, snares, difficulties, tribulations, and untold challenges. The walk of a believer is one of trust and power to engage in spiritual warfare and to be overcomers, to be super conquerors. Those who are called and obeying, and this is especially for those serving the Messianic movement in the Messianic realm, Messianic congregations, face unique trials and challenges in Zerus that unbelievers don't because the unbeliever is right where Ha-Satan wants them. Warfare can wear us down. It's a major cause of burnout, discouragement, and apostasy from your calling. Yeshua shared in John 16, verse 33, I have said these things to you, so that united with me, you may have shalom. Now remember, this is a complex word. It means peace, but it means the absence of conflict. And in some cases, I rename the Greek, it means a state of national tranquility. So he's telling us, I have said these things to you, and it, he was giving us warnings about the world we're going to live in, that there will be issues. But he says, I've told you these things so that united with me, you may have shalom. In the world, you have Zerus. But be brave, for I have conquered the world. Yeshua said, I have overcome the world. So united with him, we will be victorious. Shaul Paul had a profound understanding in this arena. His motivation was far greater than the daily spiritual and physical battles he fought in service to Adonai. His motivations are revealed in his epistles, his letters. The first one is 1 Corinthians 9, starting at verse 23. He said, but I do it all because of the rewards promised by the good news. So in his first opening statement here, what's he talking about? Motivation. He says, well, he's explaining why he does it. 
I do this all because of the rewards promised by the good news, so that I may share them along with the others who come to trust. Don't you know that in a race, all the runners compete, but only one wins the prize. So then run to win. Now, every athlete in training submits himself to strict discipline, and he does it just to win a laurel wreath that will soon wither away. But we do it to win a crown that will last forever. More motivation here. Verse 26, he says, Accordingly, I don't run aimlessly, but straight for the finish line. I don't shadow box, but try to make every punch count. Verse 27, I treat my body hard and make it my slave, so that after proclaiming the good news to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Shaul, Paul, he was in it to win it. He's a highly motivated Talmudim, servant of God. He didn't waste punches. He didn't waste time zigzagging on the course. He didn't waste a precious, precious time. It's a commodity we have the least of. He ran straight for the goal. Listen to his words in 1 Timothy 6, starting at verse 6. He says, Now true religion does bring great riches, but only to those who are content with what they have. This is motivation. For we have brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. So if we have food and clothing, we will be satisfied with these. Furthermore, those whose goal is to be rich fall into temptation. They get trapped in many foolish and hurtful ambitions, which plunge them into ruin and destruction. That's a wrong motivation. So we have a good motivation, those who are content with where they are and what they have. We have a wrong motivation, those who are uh, pursued into money and ambitions that bring them to ruin and destruction. Verse 10, he said, For the love of money is the root of all evils. Because of this craving, some people have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves of the heart with many pains. Again, wrong motivations. Verse 11, But you, as a man of God, flee from these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faithfulness, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Twelve, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you testified so well to your faith before many witnesses. Verse 13, Paul says, I charge you before God, who gives life to all things, and before the Messiah Yeshua, who in his witness to Pontius Pilate gave the same good testimony to obey your commission spotlessly and irreproachably until our Lord Yeshua, the Messiah, returns. Paul also encourages us in Galatians 6, verses 9 through 10, so let us not grow weary of doing what is good, for if we don't give up, we will in due time reap the harvest. Therefore, as the opportunity arises, let us do what is good to everyone, and especially to the family of those who are trustingly faithful. See, here, here's the key, and this is what Paul understood. The flesh is weak. The flesh seeks its own desires. As humans, we are weak. We are plagued with spiritual laziness that must be overcome each and every day. We must slay the laziness of the flesh. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, that he dies every day to self. In Galatians 5, 24, he says, Moreover, those who belong to the Messiah have put their old nature to death on the stake, along with his passions and desires. So we have a transformative process when we come into the kingdom of God. Paul says salvation is a process that we work out every day. And every day we have to sacrifice the flesh. We have to deny the flesh. Because here's the deal. Talmudim, they themselves succumb to laziness at the single most critical hour in all human history. As they had just finished the Passover Seder the night before Yeshua's crucifixion, Matthew 26, verse 40, we see a stunning scenario unfold. He returned to the Talmudim 
and he found them sleeping. Now, these are the three that are closest to him. And he takes them to the Garden of Gethsemane, to the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is literally just hours before he's to be arrested, tortured, and put on the stake. He comes back, and he finds them sleeping. And he said to Kepha, to Peter, were you so weak that you couldn't stay awake with me even for an hour? Verse 41, he says, stay awake and pray that you will not be put to the test. The spirit indeed is eager, but human nature is weak. Verse 42, a second time he went off and prayed, my father, this cup cannot pass away unless I drink it. My father, this cup cannot pass away unless I drink it. Let what you want be done. And again, he returned and he found them sleeping. Their eyes were heavy. Leaving them again in verse 44, he went off and prayed a third time saying the same words. Then verse 45, they came to the town of Edenium and said, for now, just go on sleeping, take your rest. Look, the time has come for the Son of Man to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. Verse 46, he said, get up, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. You know, like New Year resolutions, how many times have you sought to get up earlier and spend more time in prayer, more time in devotion, spend more time with God, only to roll over, hit the snooze button, and go back to sleep for just a few more minutes of sleep? We tend to disassociate ourselves from Scripture and say, oh, Peter, I can't believe he's with the Master just before he's going to be crucified, and they were sleeping. We're the same people. We're, we're cast from the same die. We need to constantly motivate ourselves to take us beyond apathy, beyond spiritual laziness and complacency that so easily overcomes believers. George Barna, the author and statistician who surveys believers regarding their beliefs in America, report the average Christian spends only one minute a day in prayer and the average pastor only five minutes. That mishpocha is a staggering number. The, and these are the mature believers. The average Christian spends only one minute a day in prayer. The average pastor, five minutes. In a prophetic 2009 Barna survey, and I say prophetic because wait till you hear this, a 2009 Barna survey stated moral anarchy had arrived in America and rules our culture today. From the time I'm doing this, that was 11 years ago. We know by watching the news every night, they were in moral and civil anarchy and chaos. But this, again, which is why I say prophetic, is a 2009 Barna survey. His observation is based on certain attitudinal and behavioral traits that we have witnessed in our society today. Record numbers of bankruptcies, frivolous lawsuits, multi-billion dollar pornography, uh, highway scoff laws, income tax evasion, computer hacking, viruses, the significant increase of white-collar crimes, mortgage crisis, stock market failures and schemes, rampant copyright violations, movies, books, recordings, worship recordings over the Internet, lack of character and integrity, desensitization to murder and death, the dramatic rise in couples living together, divorce, adultery, fatherless families, same-sex marriage, rampant homosexuality and an overwhelming abortion rate and sexually transmitted diseases and COVID-19 and pandemic. Now we have civil unrest and rioting across our land, our cities on fire. Barna went so far as to say that the U.S. was in a state of spiritual anarchy. He observed that for millions of people, their faith is no longer influenced or based upon biblical and scriptural truths, such as loyalty, respect for clergy, acceptance of biblical truths, adultery, lying, stealing, cheating, homosexuality, reverence and fear of God, personal holiness, personal righteousness, or biblical worldview. What led the list? 
loyalty. That's something I've talked about extensively throughout these talks. What led this list? Loyalty. This is also reflected in secular society as well. When the body of Messiah doesn't live a scriptural covenant lifestyle and fails to influence society, the secular world believes that their behavior is okay and acceptable. You know, it was just one generation ago, 40 years, the average person worked for two corporations their entire life. Today, by the average uh, age of 30, a young person has worked for 15 different companies. What does that tell us about loyalty? There isn't any. And I remind you, Joshua was number two to Moses for how many years? 40 years. He was loyal. Every time Moshe was inside the tabernacle, Yehoshua was at the door. Every time Moshe went up to the top of the mountain, Yehoshua went halfway up and stood there and waited for Moses. He was a faithful, loyal leader. But you know, he had a shortfall. Moses' legacy was Joshua. He raised up his heir to assume control and lead Israel into the promised land. After Joshua died, what happened to Israel? They went into the period of judges, a person doing whatever they think right according to their own eye, and it was oppression, judge raised, relief, oppression, and apostasy. There's this unending cycle throughout the book of Judges. Why is that? Because Yehoshua, Joshua himself, failed to raise up his relief. He failed to train someone to take his place when he moved on from this world. Staggering, isn't it? Loyalty. Let's get back to the statistics, Barna. By a three-to-one margin, 71% to 26%, adults noted that they are personally more likely to develop their own set of religious beliefs than to accept a comprehensive set of beliefs taught by any particular congregation. Although born-again Christians were among the segments least likely to adopt the a la carte approach to beliefs, a considerable majority, even of born-again adults, 61%, has taken that route. Leading the charge in the move to customize one's package of beliefs are people under the age of 25, among whom more than four out of five, 82%, say they develop their own combination of beliefs rather than adopt a biblical covenant lifestyle. That is completely unbiblical. To understand the word says you are transformed through the blood of Yeshua to assume a biblical-like, Christ-like, Yeshua-like identity We don't transform the kingdom of God to us. We transform unto the kingdom of God. No wonder people can't share Yeshua to Jewish people. They can't share what they don't know. Further evidence of people's unwillingness to part with covenant loyalty is revealed in a survey regarding what people believe. Among individuals who describe themselves as Christian, for instance, close to half believe that Satan does not exist. One-third contend that Yeshua sinned while he was on earth. Two-fifths say they do not have a responsibility to share the good news with others. And one-quarter dismiss the idea that the Bible is accurate and all of the principles it teaches. Again, this was 11 years ago. This shows us how desperately we need motivation. People's motivations vary. What motivates one doesn't motivate another. Let's look at some basic motivational factors that will motivate all believers into a deeper, more intimate relationship and service unto Adonai that's based upon his word the whole word. This has been an ongoing issue that we've experienced for the last 20 years. People who want to, we use the term cherry pick. I like this scripture. I don't like this scripture. I'm going to follow this scripture. This scripture is done away with. This is nailed to the cross. This one's for me today. That's not how it is. The Bible, the entire Bible, the word of God from Genesis to Revelation, the whole book is prevalent, authority, truth, and powerful in our lives today. 
And that book is the foundation. It's the metric for judgment. Every one of us have a court-appointed day with the heavenly court. Every one of us will stand before the king of kings without rabbis, without pastors, without spouses, without parents, without your brothers and sisters, you and you alone. And you will have to give an account for every action in your life, for every, Yeshua said, every word you speak, you will give an account for. And the Lord's not going to ask you, did you believe this scripture? Did you believe in that? Oh, oh, no. It's the entire word of God that's the metric for judgment. And that is what we will be judged against. Every one of us, atheist and believer alike, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Yeshua is Lord when he returns. So this is a sobering wake-up call for us to motivate people to get them into the kingdom of God, into intimate relationship and service with the Most High God of Adonai. The first on this list, which is most critical, is relationship with Adonai, intimate relationship. This is a key factor for ongoing motivation. Sincere desire to minister to and serve Adonai comes from a deep, intimate relationship with him. It reminds me of the sons and daughters of Zadok in the end of Ezekiel. For those priests, those pastors and clergy that had apostatized from God, that had strayed, God doesn't throw them away. They get to stay in the outer court and do the works of the court. They get to polish a menorah, polish the brass, sweep the carpets, clean the chairs. But only the sons of daughters of Zadok who remain true to him, they're the only ones that can go into the presence of God and minister to him. We're talking about eternity here. And to develop a lifestyle that we can minister to him forever. Listen, I don't want to spend forever in the outer court. I don't want to spend forever on the outside looking in. I don't want to spend forever thinking, geez, I could have been in his presence. If we motivate ourselves into that deep, intimate relationship here and now with heartfelt love for Yeshua, it will motivate a deep desire to serve him and to be a son or daughter of Zadok now that you can spend forever ministering to him in his presence. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 3 says, I may give away everything that I own. I may even hand over my body to be burned, but if I lack love, I gain nothing. Here's the heart of the matter. Religion places all the focus on what one does rather than who you are and who he is. We have a loathing for religion here. We teach relationship and intimacy with him. There's only one motivation in drawing unto Adonai, and it's a relationship of love. Why would I be obedient and, and follow all of his commandments and do what his word tells me to do? Because I love him. Because I have a heartfelt desire to please him. It's the same relationship I have with my wife. Why would my wife follow me and come under my covenant leadership and submit to me? Because I love her unconditionally. And if you love your wife unconditionally with a heartfelt love, she will follow you everywhere. And Paul says this is a relationship between Messiah and us in the body. He loves us unconditionally, and in return of that love, we will do anything that pleases him. But what pleases him? Start reading his word. It tells us what makes him happy. And I do what I do out of love, not out of capitulation to command or obedience, but because I love him. Any other motivation, ritual, or outward display of deed or action results in pride, religion, and legalism none of which honor or ministers to God. This is an age-old millennial dilemma. 
The people in the prophet Micah's day complained that God was never satisfied with their rituals and outward displays of worship. This is an ongoing problem we have with the cult of Judaism today, and it is a cult because God doesn't want rituals and outward displays of worship. He wants your heart. And as it was back in the day, Micah was a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah, a time when Judah was heavily involved with idolatry and apostasy. Judah and the priests were not in relationship with Adonai. They were just going through the rituals. And they snidely ask in Micah 6, starting at verse 6, with what can I come before Adonai to bow down before God on high? Should I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves in their first year? Verse 7, would Adonai take delight in thousands of rams with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Could I give my firstborn to pay for my crimes, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? What an arrogant, haughty prayer. It was their way of asking, what does God want from us? And Adonai, he commented to them in Isaiah 29, verse 13. Remember, Micah and Isaiah, they're, they're contemporaries. And here's what the Lord says in Isaiah 29, 13. Because these people approach me with empty words, and the honor they bestow on me is mere lip service, while in fact they have distanced their hearts from me, and their fear of me is just a mitzvah of human origin. Adonai's answer is profoundly simple and clear. In Micah, he gives several points that contain no religion, no rhetoric, no legalistic rituals. In Micah 6, verse 8, he says, Human being, you have already been told what is good, what Adonai demands of you. No more than to act justly, love grace, and walk in purity with your God. Adonai checks the motivation of our heart, not our outward ritualistic practices. Our motivation must be of love in him, of him, and about him, drawing closer to him, to that secret place, so that your heart beats as one with his. Then you'll have a desire to fulfill his desires, which will come to pass in your calling and through ministering unto him in love. The next thing in this is your calling. The conviction of Adonai's calling in your life is an ultimate motivational factor, Paul Shaul understood this and spoke to it in Romans 1.1. He said, from Shaul, Paul, a slave of the Messiah, an emissary, because I was called and set apart for the good news of God. Now, let, let's pause here and refresh for a moment. How was Paul called? We call this the road to Damascus encounter. He had been getting in this, I'm, I'm going to set some uh, religious cows on fire here. Paul did not persecute Christians. Christians didn't exist in the day, the Sanhedrin gave letters to Paul. The Sanhedrin only had authority over Jewish people. He was persecuting Messianic Jews in the land. He said he was there when Stephen was stoned to death and they laid his coat at his feet. So he was vehemently attacking Messianic Jewish believers in the land of Israel. There's no Christians. There's no Gentile believers yet. And he, had a, he was on his way to Damascus to do even more of this when Yeshua revealed himself on the road to he and his two companions, blinded him for several days until he sent another servant who didn't want to do it, but they lay hands on him, pray, and called Shaul Paul forth into supernatural ministry, other than Yeshua, probably one of the most dynamic and transformative leaders in the New Testament. This is critical because he knew he was called. Paul Shaul was convinced. He was motivated by his calling. Some are permanently called. Others is for a time and a season. I can tell you for the 10 years before Rabitzin and I formed Congregation Zion's sake, we were involved in ministries. And it seemed like every 18 months, we were involved in a different aspect of ministry. 
And at the time, for the both of us, she did children's ministry. I uh, I did ushers and greeters. I taught classes. I taught intercessory prayer. Uh, I taught uh, deliverance ministries. We're all over the place. And and I remember Rabitzin and I having this conversation. Lord, you know, what, what are you doing? Why would he keep going from place to place to place? Well, now, 25 years later, we look back. The Lord was training us. There's nothing in a congregation and a ministry that we haven't done and served in, not a one. And so he was taking us through all the components of worship and ministry, teaching us how a congregation runs. But at the time, it didn't seem like that. It's like, why are we doing these things for 18 months, for two years at a time? Well, everything's for a season, and he was preparing us for what we're doing now. Motivation is helped by a strong conviction of calling that you are doing what Adonai has called you to do. It's despairing for me to know that I have seen many, many leaders in the body over the years question their calling, some not even knowing if they've been called. I've incredibly sat in meetings, leadership training meetings with senior leaders, and someone asked, who knows that they're you know, succinctly called to ministry? And half the people raised their hands. Ms. Bokal, I tell you right now, if I wasn't called to this, I would be doing something else. In fact, I've never shared this outside of intimate conversations, but what I'm doing right now, this, you know, I'm a rabbi because God called me to do that. That's not my heart's desire. I'm a person. I have dreams. I have visions. I'm a father. I'm a sportsman. There's all kinds of other things I do outside of serving God. I have heart's desires, but I'm following God because he commanded me to do it. I had my own road to Damascus encounter like Paul did, and there's no doubt in my mind, which is why I'm not ever involved in part-time ministry. As soon as we were able, we went full-time. I know who I serve. I know what he called me to do, and there's no question, and that's one of the most powerful motivations in my life. I tasted God 23 years ago, didn't know what it was, and now for the last 22 years, he's had me chasing after him to have another encounter just like that. It was life-changing and transformative, and I'm praying every one of you listening to this will have your own road to Damascus encounter, and like Paul, have a transformative, life-changing moment, that aha moment that you know this is exactly what he wants me to do, no matter what arena that is.